Shalom and welcome to another episode of Israel Policy Pod. I'm Eli Koaz. And I'm Evan Grottisman. So today we're going to talk about the Trump peace plan that hasn't magically appeared yet before our eyes. And to talk about it, we're joined by uh, Israel Policy Forum Israel Fellow Nimrod Novik. Nimrod is a longtime advisor to uh, the late uh, Shimon Peres and also former special ambassador of the state of Israel. And he is a former advisor to the National Security Council. Um, Nimrod, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So where is the Trump plan at the moment? Where is the ultimate deal? How does it look? Um, the, the Trump plan is either in the freezer or in the shredder. Um, look, uh, obviously we don't know. Uh, there are so many sides of the moon that are not visible uh, to uh, us outside observers. Uh, but from the little that we were able to detect uh, from the various uh, regional uh, interlocutors, those who were visited by uh, the uh, uh, Kushner Greenblatt uh, team uh, the week before last, uh, it seems that the administration's Plan A and Plan B um, are at a uh, standstill, at a uh, deadlock. Plan A, known as the ultimate deal, the deal of the century, uh, basically bringing Israelis and Palestinians and making peace between them, uh, apparently um, requires a lot more thinking uh, a lot more restructuring, redrafting, uh, for one reason. Uh, from what we hear, and again, we don't hear everything, but from what we do hear, uh, in all three major stops in the region, which is uh, Egypt's Cairo, uh, Jordan's Amman, and Saudi Arabia's uh, Riyadh, in all three stops, uh, each host in his own style basically uh, suggested sorry, not can do. That is to say, the three Arab players who were supposed to endorse the plan and help the administration uh, usher the Palestinians through the corridor of the plan, uh, all three felt that there was something in the plan uh, that made it uh, virtually impossible for them to go public with it. Uh, so uh, with that, uh, the administration will have to do a lot more thinking. Now, I heard in Washington just in the last couple of days that the fact that the regionals say don't do it does not necessarily mean that the administration will not do it. But it does suggest that if prospects for success were quite limited before the trip, uh, they are even more so in the wake of it. So that's about as far as, as Plan A. Plan B was Gaza. That is, sorry, yeah. Let's just, stay, if we could stay on plan A for a second, I would like to talk about the effect of Jerusalem in plan A. Uh, the embassy opened, uh, the U.S. embassy opened in Jerusalem in May. You also had... Uh, recognition and, of the capital by the U.S. Recognition of the capital. Trump said that Jerusalem was off the table. I don't think anybody uh, knew exactly what that meant, but clearly the Palestinians took it as taking a core issue off the table, which is obviously unacceptable to them. And we saw leaked reports that the proposed ultimate deal 
had Abu Dis as the capital of the Palestinian state. Is this like the game breaker? It's, it's an interesting question because uh, prior to uh, the Jerusalem thing, which is the recognition and the embassy, um, there were those in the Arab world who still committed to the administration to help deliver the deal. First and foremost, uh, the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, also known as MBS. And apparently, um, perhaps not exposed to all the details, perhaps not being digging into them, perhaps not being sufficiently familiar with er- where Abu Dis is, and that Abu Dis is not necessarily part of what the Arab world called called Al Quds, which is the uh, Arab Muslim Jerusalem. Uh, and it's not just uh, we have we hear all kind of rumors of uh, where the Palestinian capital is supposed to be according to the uh, ultimate deal, uh, and but but everything we hear is that no matter which neighborhood of Jerusalem is being considered, none of them were part of pre sixty seven Jerusalem, which is part of what the Arab world defines as Al Quds. There are all the now, outlying villages that were outlying villages. Some suggestions are that they even don't have uh, uh, contiguity amongst them. They're like a Swiss cheese kind of capital with Israeli territory in between. All, all kind of, of uh, these are all rumors. Uh, they, they, they seem to, to have some merit, but we don't really know. What we do know, um, Jerusalem was um, presented as the reason why those Arab parties that were willing to support it before Jerusalem are unable to do it after. Now, is that the reason is the, is the break around Jerusalem was so dramatic as to make it impossible for them uh, to go for it? Or is that the excuse? When they find out when, that they had thought that delivering the Palestinians is easy, a billion dollar, a billion and a half dollar, uh, our pressure, and it's going to happen. And in the interim, they learned that there is power in weakness. And that when Abu Mazen said no on Jerusalem, he became a hero among his own people. And perhaps there is no amount of money that can force, encourage or force him to say yes to something that is politically suicidal for any Palestinian, and a betrayal of his principles to any Palestinian leader. So, Jerusalem was the moment that yes turned into sorry, no, was it the reason or the excuse? I don't know. Okay. And so what's plan B? Plan B was, okay, if the ultimate deal is frozen, shelved, whatever, uh, be it because the Arabs don't endorse it, which was not expected, or because Netanyahu doesn't want it now, which could be the case, whatever it is, plan B was to do something good about Gaza. Uh, Gaza seemed easier because it's in the consensus. There's nobody who disputes the need to do something and urgently to change the humanitarian situation in Gaza. Uh, Even those whose heart is hardened on the two million who are suffering over there, uh, the potential security consequences of the situation, the potential health consequences to Israel uh, from... uh, pandemics and, and other uh, problems that, that coming out of, of, of Gaza uh, should suffice. 
So everybody understands that with 65% youth unemployment, with 95% of the water not suitable for human consumption, with three, four hours of electricity in the heat of the day, with, 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 with um, the sewer system running in the streets, um, with the hospitals lacking equipment, something has to be done. And therefore, the assumption was that it should be fairly easy to get the donor community, particularly the Arab donors, to come up with a substantial sum of money to start a mega project of, of Gaza rehabilitation. A power plant, desalination plant, sewer system, electricity grid, and so on. But when asked about the how, not the what, but the how, uh, the question was, how do you do Gaza rehabilitation if you can't talk to Hamas because it's a terrorist organization as defied by Congress, and uh, the PA will not talk to you because of Jerusalem and everything else, and even if the PA were to talk to you, the PA is hostile to the idea of Gaza rehabilitation if Hamas is the beneficiary. How do you do Gaza rehabilitation without Hamas? and without the PA. And it turns out that the assumption that you could do it via private sector was in the region laughable. Because there is no private sector to speak of in Gaza that is capable of uh, leading a project of the magnitude of a power plant, desalination plant, or major infrastructure, major, major, any other major uh, infrastructure project. So you have the team come back home with a need to do a lot of a lot more homework on two things. One, how do we square the circle for Gaza rehabilitation? And two, what do we do with a peace plan that is driven by ideology and not by regional expertise. In terms of the Plan B and the Gaza situation, isn't the administration shooting itself in the foot a little because they're out in the region trying to solicit funding to rehabilitate Gaza, but at home they're holding up the funding for the U.S. aid projects in Gaza, assistance that's separate from the Taylor Force Act and things related to terrorism. So they're trying to solve the problem on the one hand in the region, but back home they're, they're holding up whatever money they could produce as the U.S. administration. You're absolutely right. The internal contradictions in the, po in the policy uh, are quite uh, startling. Um, you mentioned uh, freezing USAID uh, funds, uh, and, and you were right in saying that those funds have nothing to do uh, with the Taylor Force Act because they are not serving the Palestinian Authority, but rather humanitarian project, and that has been frozen. But you also uh, are well aware that funds are being cut drastic drastically from the uh, UN uh, organization that deals with Palestinian refugees, UNRWA, uh, and by cutting those funds comes September, 275,000 Palestinian youth will be out in the street because their schools are going to be shut. Now, if we are lucky, they're going to be in the street. If we're not lucky, they're going to be in the mosque in Gaza. Um, and it's not just that the school will be closed. The only secular school system, the only non-Hamas school system in Gaza is UNRWA's. 
So the American funding decision to freeze all funds for UNRWA uh, is, is, is going to shut down the only school system that, is, that has international oversight, that there's no incitement in it against Israel and Jews. Um, it is, it, the internal contradictions were only one of the ironies and problems uh, of the uh, intention to do a Gaza rehabilitation plan. I mean, there, there's been some issues with UNRWA that have been that have come to light whenever there's a round of fighting or war in Gaza. It's not. I, don't, I agree with you. I don't think it's a, it's an excuse or, or a pretext to pull the rug out from under the program altogether. Um, but I think that the outlook, because I think this is going to, especially back here as a domestic issue, it's going to keep coming up in terms of UNRWA's attitude towards Israel. So I think the out, the outlook from here has to be a way to reform yeah. and restructure UNRWA um, yeah. as a vital and indispensable entity in the Palestinian territories. There are a lot of issues with UNRWA, but I think you can't just throw UNRWA away without an adequate replacement, and there is no replacement there, at least not yet. I don't believe in UNRWA reform. I don't believe that it's doable. I don't believe you can build the consensus in the UN in order to reform UNRWA. I think UNRWA has to be replaced, just as, as, as you say, Eli. Uh, uh, but I don't believe UNRWA will be replaced um, before there is substantial breakthrough on Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. Uh, I think that trying to do it out of context, it's not going to happen. And therefore, uh, we have to keep an eye on this behavior or that behavior of UNRWA uh, uh, but I don't think you can change UNRWA's mandate or UNRWA's mindset. Um, it, it, the organization has to go. Uh, but as long as it's the only venue uh, for that kind of refugee relief, we have no choice uh, but to try and work with it. Are you optimistic that something in Gaza can be, can be reached? Some agreement? Kind of a form of the Plan B? Look, um, um, the Egyptians launched a major initiative for, for, for changing dramatically the situation in Gaza. They started immediately after the uh, war in uh, four years ago, in uh, the summer of 2014. They prepped the ground for it. They, they did a lot of preparations for what the, the uh, consensus was, uh, another doomed-to-failure reconciliation effort. I mean, we've seen it before, we'll see it again and again and again, but no, this time it was different, and indeed it was going somewhere. Uh, it started to take roots primarily because there was a dramatic change in the leadership uh, of Hamas inside Gaza, and the new leadership uh, had the credentials for changing course. Uh, they, they had what it takes to do a, a Nixon to China. Uh, they had so much blood on their hands, on the one hand, and yet they wanted to, 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 to change the, the, dramatically the situation on the ground. So the Egyptian initiative was moving forward, but a, uh, a, an Israeli complicity with, with Abu Mazen's reluctance, he's too tired, he's, 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 he's not healthy, he, he's, not, uh, he's comfortable with the status quo, he's not looking for mega challenges like to, to take responsibility for rehabilitating Gaza. So he needed help. And he needed pressure to do so. And the only ones who could both help and press were the U.S. and Israel. 
Uh, and both decided not to cooperate. At some point, decided not to cooperate with the Egyptian uh, strategy. Um, I hear that, uh, and, and that was a few months ago, um, and as a result, the same leader uh, who uh, worked with the Egyptian intelligence on, 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 on the original plan, um, when moderation didn't work, he did what you do in the Middle East. He sought shelter in extremism. Uh, and that was when Hamas basically hijacked what initially was grassroots idea of the march on the fence, of the assault on the fence. And Hamas hijacked it and funded busing and so on of people. And then came the wave of uh, uh, kites and balloons that set fire uh, to Israeli uh, agricultural uh, developments uh, across the border from Gaza. Uh, and we, we are into the, a day, I think, 110 or maybe 111 of this phenomenon. And I'm told that in the wake of this two, three months of misery for the Israeli population uh, of the south, uh, bordering on, on Gaza, uh, that there is a change of mind in the political echelon, and they are willing to uh, to accept the advice of the security establishment to cooperate with the Egyptian strategy that is meant to produce two processes. One is gradually bring back the PA to run Gaza, and once the PA is back, the international community will have no uh, problem uh, funding development projects because the beneficiary will not be Hamas. And second, start a process of taming Hamas, of steering Hamas away from a militant terrorist organization to a ideological religious that, of the kind that we don't like, but a political party in the Palestinian uh, territories. Now, we don't know if the two processes which are supposed to reinforce each other will succeed. But we, there is a reason, reason to believe that the very fact that the process starts will contribute to stability. Because once you have these processes begin, you have the investment from the international community, you have relaxation of the closure, both on the Egyptian side and on the Israeli side, and you are going to have a cha change of dynamics on the ground in the, in, the, in the Strip, in the Gaza Strip, that is uh, less conducive for another round of violence. So it sounds like there's some change of thinking on the Israeli side, but in terms of what the United States administration was trying to achieve, it seems like they're fumbling around in the dark, that they're working with the wrong pieces and they don't really seem to know what they're doing. Um, as you know, we're running our 50 Steps Before the Deal initiative with Israel Policy Forum, elaborating on different incremental measures that the administration could take to improve the situation. Do you think that there are smaller steps that Washington can take to improve the situation rather than, in the Gaza context, rush for what seems to be a comprehensive package to solve all of the issues in the Strip? Or is it sort of an, or has it become so bad that it's sort of an all or nothing situation at this point? Again, I don't presume to know everything that's going on in Washington, definitely. Uh, but from the little that we are exposed to, it looks as though before the ideologues um, hijacked the ultimate deal, the administration was working on something very similar to what the Israel Policy Forum is recommending in those 50, 50 steps to change 
the atmosphere, to reduce the cynicism, to reduce the skepticism, to start creating some kind of confidence and atmosphere that is conducive for negotiations later on. Which is, by the way, what Commanders for Israel's security has been recommending all along uh, in its security first plan, uh, which is available on the Israel Policy Forum dedicated uh, website, uh, twostatesecurity.org. So yes, uh, I believe that the entire Egyptian package on Gaza is a, 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 a a, a cluster of mini and more major steps within those 50 that should be undertaken in order to create the setting that is condu- conducive for negotiations. So yes, definitely so. And the question, the question I'm asking myself now is, you know, the professionals were working on exactly that by the time the process was kidnapped. The process was kidnapped and the moment was visible to all of us. Jerusalem was the moment. The professionals realized that the president wants to do Jerusalem and therefore Jerusalem has to happen. The question is how? And they suggested all kinds of formulas that were supposed to ease the blow on the Palestinians, on the process, on the Arab world. Some kind of not as dramatic as moving the embassy, uh, but something for the Palestinians that is more amorphic, but still. Uh, And yet, it was the ideological school that dismissed all sort of compromise formulas and went for what we witnessed. The question I'm asking myself, in the wake of the last couple of weeks, coming home empty-handed, will the professionals have another shot at it now that the ideologues basically failed. Well, wait and see. Um, Nimrod, thank you very much for, for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have you on and to have you in the studio in particular. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. So, like we discussed, Israel Policy Forum is running a new initiative, 50 Steps Before the Deal. And this is a digital resource that's highlighting every day different steps that the U.S. administration can take to improve conditions and preserve the conditions that would be necessary for a viable two-state agreement between Palestinians and Israelis in the future. And these are steps that are not dependent, they're not all dependent on the United States, that can be taken by Israelis and Palestinians, but there is one step in particular that is completely dependent on the United States, and that is releasing the frozen funds to USAID. So we're joined by our executive director, David Halperin, to talk about a bit the importance of uh, releasing those funds. Uh, hi, guys. Hi, David. <laughs> so, uh, look, I, I think uh, there's there's two issues here. Um, one is uh, ongoing funding for various uh, programs that the, the United States uh, uh, funds, um, economic support. Uh, security assistance, um, uh, and of course humanitarian aid. Uh, What we're talking about in particular is uh, both security assistance is currently withheld, but also USAID programs. USAID programs will be uh, reallocated uh, and cut 
certain programs that directly benefit the Palestinian Authority as part of the recent Taylor Force Act, um, there was an there was a timeline uh, at which point um, the amount uh, of those funds was to be identified uh, in order to be allocated appropriately. Um, that timeline has been passed, uh, as we understand. Uh, the issue now lies at the desk of uh, the President of the United States to release uh, the funding. We're talking um, roughly $85 million, of which I believe it's something like $25 million is likely to be uh, held as part of the Taylor Force Act. Um, but is, we're talking about a significant amount of money uh, going towards uh, infrastructure projects, job training programs, people-to-people initiatives um, that the United States um, supports. Uh, and that are not only at risk of uh, not receiving the funding, they're at risk of actually closing down uh, if they don't receive the, this uh, this support. Um, and, of course, it happens at a time of increasing concern around economic conditions uh, in, in Gaza and, and obviously, uh, uh, the investment that we've made in so many other uh, projects in the West Bank, which is actually something that early on in the Trump administration, um, the team led by Jason Greenblatt was priding itself on investing in these sorts of projects, water, uh, sewage plants and so forth in the, in the West Bank, electricity arrangements uh, with the Israelis that have been supported by USAID, etc. Um, so all of that that had been uh, viewed as a priority early on in the administration is now facing, uh, is really quite in jeopardy. Um, and today, uh, of course, the news broke that uh, a number of, of congressmen uh, led by Ted Deutsch issued a letter uh, to the White House concerned that, there, that this process has not been transparent in terms of the Palestinian aid review and concerned about these, this funding not, uh, not being released, not only, again, USAID, but also the long popular Israeli-Palestinian security coordination, which receives U.S. support, is also frozen as part of this review, making this uh, also quite concerning. They're also asking for a time frame, because like you mentioned, the the expected date, I think was July 2nd, right? And that's long since passed. Correct. So the step to release some of this frozen funding is one of our steps that we're highlighting on this 50 Steps Before the Deal program. You can find... Articles, different uh, things from other policy institutes, think tanks, videos, other podcasts, and these are all going to be coordinated with new steps being added every weekday, and you can find those on the 50 Steps website, 50beforethedeal, 50beforethedeal.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can learn more about Israel Policy Forum online at our website, www.israelpolicyforum.org, and on our social media outlets on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Telegram. Thanks for joining us.